You're listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast, hosted by Luke Hector, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. This show is about board and card games, and dedicated to you, the people who play them. Whether you're a hardcore gamer or a newcomer to the hobby, I hope this show is both informative and entertaining. I invite you to sit back and enjoy. Fresh out of Sorcon 2016, episode 41 looks back on my thoughts over the three days of board gaming. What was the venue like? What was the people like? What were the games I played like? This is about Sorcon 2016 and then finishes up with my top 10 designers in board games. Hey everyone, it's Luke here, and shattered is one word I would use to describe myself. Three days of board gaming does take it out of you, followed by a drive home and messing around with your PC trying to get the thing to work. Yeah, my hard drive screwed up on me as I got back. I was thinking, oh, I'll get this podcast recorded straight as soon as I get through the door. And then my hard drive decided it was going to fail, and now I have to basically get a new one to replace that. That delayed me a little while though because I'm not the most tech-savvy person in the world when it comes to PC repair. But, oh well, that's another story. But I've just come back from Sorkon 2016. As you know, I've been trying out all the conventions I can since last year. Normally I just went to the UK Games Expo, but then Essen became a good one. And also during that year, I visited ManorCon and MidCon. Now, okay, there are little mini conventions that I visit, like StabCon South, for example, but they're, you know, they're fairly small gatherings. I'm trying to get into the fairly large conventions that are going around the UK at the moment, and these tend to be SawCon, ManorCon, MidCon, BayCon, I've heard about down in Exeter. I'll see if I can get down to that one maybe at the end of this month. But SawCon is the first one for this year. Held in Basildon, Essex, this one boasts a good couple hundred people at least, if not maybe more, and mainly takes place in the Holiday Inn in Basildon, Essex, in one room. Occasionally filtering out into a different room, but basically we have one giant room full of tables with a second-hand sale with a shop who turns up there, and generally it's a big gathering of friends. You come along and play games. Pretty much how Manicon and Midcon worked, just maybe on a slightly smaller scale. But that doesn't necessarily mean it was no less enjoyable. This one was organised very well. The accommodation was easy enough to book into with a special rate. Food, even though it's expensive being Holiday Inn, at least was made slightly cheaper for us under a convention rate, which a lot of places don't seem to be willing to do. The hosts were constantly giving updates as to what was going on, and all in all, it was handled really well. Even the second-hand bring-and-buy thing was literally just a corner table with games on and post-it notes. Well, it worked fine, no one nicked any games, and people were able to buy games easily and affordably. So, eat your heart out, UK Games Expo, maybe you should take a leaf off them in how to run a second-hand bring-and-buy sale, eh? Nah, actually, that's like comparing apples to oranges, really. I mean, the Games Expo has thousands of people go through that thing. But yeah, seriously, you need a bigger room, but we'll get on to that another time. For now, Sorcon was a great time and I will definitely be there next year. If I was going to nitpick on any faults, I think one thing that this and a lot of other conventions seem to fail on is they need better ways to get people involved in looking for games. 
Now, generally, it wasn't that bad. I mean, the hall's only so big, and you tend to notice when people are loitering in order to get into a game, and everyone's friendly, so if you just go up next to them, you can easily just ask, and you'll get accepted into a game. Everybody was very friendly to that nature. But it would be nice to have some way to show people that you're looking for a game. Now, you could just basically go to a table, set up a game, and wait for people to turn up, problem is people don't necessarily get the impression that you're waiting for any old gamer or whether you're waiting for your friends to come out of the upstairs room or the restaurant or something in which case people get a bit nervous about asking so i would say that just some kind of system in place where you could make it obvious you were looking for a game if you're like someone like me who came solo to the event as opposed to others who come in groups and it doesn't have to be anything extravagant. I mean, just a flag or something would do. I mean, you had a balloon with a cow hanging above a table for ages. A small little flag's not going to hurt. Or even just a little piece of paper that you can just hold up. I mean, anything that basically gives the impression this person is looking for players, go and see what he says. But as faults go, that is a major nitpick. All in all, I really enjoyed it. And there is no doubt that if I'm available next year, I will be there next year. It's only a two-hour drive, and there were a lot of cool people that I got to meet this time. Some who follow the blog, some who have been pretty much liking every single post I put out for some reason. And it was just a blast to finally meet some of these people in person. And I never had to you know, broadcast who I was or anything. I mean, I had my t-shirt on for one day, but that was it. Friday and Sunday, I just wore casual clothes, and people recognized the face or the voice or asked if I was in charge of a blog, that kind of thing. And it all worked well. So, yeah, definitely good people, definitely good venue, definitely good gaming all round. And I do mean good gaming. There was no dud. Okay, there were one or two games that I might not have thought were as good as they could be, but I enjoyed every single game I played. And I'm not just talking about because I was with good people, I didn't play a single dud that weekend. Some conventions I'll go to and it's like, oh, this is a new game, let's try it out, and then I probably may not like it, but... Well, I'm not saying like every game, but what I'm saying is in previous conventions there have been at least one or two games I played that you know I wasn't a big fan of. This time there wasn't. Every single game was enjoyable, even if one or two weren't as good as I thought they could be. But you know they were still. If I was going to rate them, I'd still rate them a six. Would still make some decent games overall. But there were some that I thought hmm, these make good seven and eight. But I would probably say I played mostly games that I owned. I did a lot of teaching over there, so naturally the games I was teaching I love anyway. So that was kind of normal, and I even managed to get some Sentinels and the Multiverse games in at the very last minute, so that was definitely worth it. But even the new ones that I did play, some of them were, well, it's hard to say if they were recent or not. One of them's technically a reprint, but we'll get on to the first impressions in just a second. Other than that, there's not a huge amount to update on. My life is pretty much as it was before, although there's a rumour that somebody might be wanting to buy my flat. So the only problem is I don't have a place that I want to live in yet. So this might cause problems. The workload is high when it comes to the blog and certainly with my job. It's audit season and my company is just giving me a ton to do in terms of keeping up with its audit mainly because of things I have to do for my predecessor and everything has to be done in a shorter space of time this year. But, you know, you don't want to hear about my life story all the time. You want to hear about games. Now, just before I start the first impressions, yeah, I know, I know this is frustrating, but 
one thing I mentioned before about the four-minute review, no, four-minute, the ten-minute review episodes I was going to do, that is still in the pipeline, and I do intend to do those because I'm getting inundated with review copies that I have to get out in written form. This means that it doesn't leave me very much time to review games that I buy from my own pocket and ones that I've had in my collection for a while that I feel deserve a review. So the idea is that I'm going to use the 10-minute episodes on the podcast to do those games, the ones that I've had in the collection for a while, and the ones that I decided I was willing to pay my own money for because I figured these would be good games. That way I can save the new stuff that I get as review copies for the written format. And I do have a couple of previews to do as well. I don't normally like doing previews, but there will be a preview article for the Paco Games Set 2. That's going to start on Kickstarter on the 3rd of March, I believe. And if you remember those, they were basically the four games that came in chewing gum-sized packets. That, you know, quote-unquote, packed a lot of game in a small package. So this is a new set of four games, and I will be doing a preview article with that very, very soon. But for now, we need to get on with episode 41 because it's essentially running a bit overdue this month, mainly because of the workload and mainly because of Sorcon as well. So without further ado, free first impressions for you for new games I played at Sorcon 2016. So, first of all, we're going to start with the most unlikely of games you probably expected to see appear on the first impressions on a day where I haven't played any dud games, and that is a game by Reiner Knizia called Samurai. Now, Samurai was made all the way back in 1998, but this was the Fantasy Flight reprint of this classic tile-laying game by The Good Doctor. Now, people know that my relationship with Reiner Knizia games tends to be on the poor side because I'm a big sucker for theme, and Reiner Knizia basically puts theme on the backbench and focuses on mechanics, so if the mechanics aren't airtight, it's not going to be one that I like. That's not to say I don't like any Reiner Knizia game. Tigris and Euphrates is one that I like a lot, and this is also part of what they call the Tile Lane Trilogy, which is Tigris, Samurai, and Through the Desert. Samurai is set in medieval Japan, and the idea is, is that you're trying to get these various tokens, so rice paddies, Buddha tokens, and these, they're either helmets or they're big buildings, it's hard to tell. And the idea is, is that you place these tiles on the board in order to win favour over those various tokens, and once they're completely surrounded, the player who has the most favour gets the token. So the fact that this is all about medieval Japan and you're trying to use, you know, samurai, peasants and priests, you know, get the favours from them and do all this stuff, yeah, you might as well put the theme out of the window at this point because essentially you are putting tiles on the map and surrounding tokens. The tiles themselves are supposed to be, you know, winning favour with those three factions and occasionally samurai where they influence all the three tokens whereas most of them sort of influence one. And you've got a couple of special tokens that do weird combo-y things. That's pretty much the game. You just constantly play these tiles on the map surrounding these tokens until one, you know, until the end game is triggered which is usually a case that one particular token has been completely removed from the board. Now, this sounds like a boring game. Now, I'm not going to say it's the most thematic thing ever, because that would be stupid. This is a Reiner Knizia game, of all things. But the game itself, from a tactical, strategic level, 
is actually pretty good. This was enjoyable even at stupidly late at night, which must have been something at least past 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday when I was already shattered. And then to get into what was a fairly brain-burning tactical game for the space of an hour and play this with two new players. It was a really cool little game, though. You have to think hard on your turn. It can lead to some analysis paralysis, but the game still takes no more than an hour with three people, which is a good sweet spot. And there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with those two combo tokens. You have to think hard about... Let's see, there's because you know what the distribution of all the tokens is. It's written on the back of your screen, and what you take is hidden. So you know what other players have played. So you've got to think, ooh, has he got... Because you, you draw from a face-down pile, so you've only got five to choose from, but you can see what the opponents have played. So you've got to think, has he got that token yet? Oh, he hasn't played that. If I go there, he could screw me over like this. And the scoring mechanism is Reiner Knizia's shtick, where even though the first uh, tiebreaker for the win is the majorities, you know, who's got the most of a particular token, the tiebreaker for that is then adding up the score of the other two tokens that you had no majority of. So to put it another way, you've got three different sets of tokens. You first see who's got the most majorities of them. Typically, you'll draw with somebody unless you've done really, really well. And then, if that doesn't work, you then add up the total tokens from the two sets that you didn't have majorities on. And then that's usually the thing that clinches the game. Although in our case, there was still only a two-token difference between me and second place. And had I not screwed over one player by ending the game sooner than he was hoping for, he would have probably actually been one point behind me as well. So it's another one of those occasions where the scoring mechanism works in its favour to produce some very close games. This is one reason I like Tigris and Euphrates, because that one requires you to balance your scores out, because you you know getting a munchkin amount of one particular set won't do you any favours, because you need to get a balance of all of them, because your lowest lot is going to score. I really like that scoring mechanism, and to be fair, I'll give Reiner Knizia credit, he is the one who does this the best in his games. So it was a quick one. One hour, bit of a brain burner, certainly at that time of night, but really cool. Managed to win it by one point. Enjoyed it. I was certainly thinking on every turn. It wasn't like I knew exactly what I was doing or anything, but I was constantly involved and I was pleasantly surprised. Certainly, I would much prefer to have this one than the previous one because, well, it's fantasy flight. Everything produced by them is going to look nicer. Now, even though the box is stupidly oversized for what you get, the tokens are really cool little 3D plastic miniatures that, you know, nice and spiky miniatures of the sort of Japanese style buildings and Buddha heads. The tiles are nice and thick, and, you know, it's not a colourful game as such, but, you know, it's very stark and striking. It's a bit like how the Time Stories board gets to you. And it just looks really, really nice. So, you know, kudos to Fantasy Fight for doing a really good reprint. So, Samurai by Reiner Knizia. Nice little, quick brain burner. Now we come on to a racing game in the form of Steampunk Rally. I'd been wanting to try this out for a while because I'd heard good things about it, but I'd also heard one or two iffy nitpicks about it, so I had to find out for myself. We played this with four players, one of which was a little bit on the analysis paralysis side, but no, make, no big deal. And the idea is, is that you construct 
your racing machine, if you can call it that, out of various parts in true typical steampunk fashion where you've got people cycling on zeppelins and running around in like electric powered carts and sticking things, you know, in every single place, every which way but loose in order to make it work, you know, generate power and make the thing go. It's your classic steampunk style. The idea is, is that it uses a unique dice placement mechanism where the, each person, you've got three different types of dice, steam, heat and electricity, blue, red and yellow respectively. The parts will do all sorts of different things. They'll make you move, they'll generate more dice, they'll remove dice from your machine because when you place dice on there you've then got to vent them out. Naturally things get clogged up when you use them, you know, steampunk is not the most reliable form of machinery that you can get. And they do all sorts of really cool things. You're racing along a very basic track and you're going through mountains which causes damage to your flying machine. You take too much damage, parts will start falling off your machine, a bit like uh, taking damage in Galaxy Trucker. This was That was kind of the game I was thinking of when I played this. It feels very much like when your ship starts falling apart in Galaxy Trucker, but taking out that horrible timed phase at the start. Now... All in all, it, the game was quite enjoyable, but I will say it's a bit long. The playing time says 45 to 60 minutes. I don't know where they got that length from. I feel it goes on a little bit too long if you've got some analysis paralysis players there. I feel it could be a little bit shorter. Maybe the track could be just slightly shorter. Because the problem is, some people are going to build the biggest machine ever. It's going to have like 15 parts on it. And when you're trying to allocate dice and generate dice and do all sorts of combo-y tricks with that many parts, even though most of the game is simultaneous, you're going to have three people sitting there waiting for one person to finish his 15 parts that he's got to tinker with. So occasionally you will have to wait around for that. The way you get the parts is by drafting, and drafting is always a good little thing. It's a simple draft. You just take one card from four different piles, three of which are the various uh, power, you know, steam, heat, and electricity type of parts, and one of them is a boost card, which is basically a special ability card that you can play one off. Now you draft these, and then you do your various tinkering around simultaneously with all the dice, and then you move your thing. Hopefully trusting that people who rolled the dice actually rolled what they said. You know, it is one of those problems when you've got simultaneous dice play. But it was a cool little game. I like the fact that you've got all sorts of different parts, even if there is a fair amount of repeat. I like the fact that, you know, you could just munchkin one particular power supply, and that works. Or you could go for a balance of all three, and that works as well. I think I started off being a bit of a heat nut, and then eventually realized, ooh, this was pretty inefficient, and moved on to a balance of heat and steam, where steam was the key. I ended up playing against one opponent who was a bit of a heat nut, you know, more of a heat nut. And then I also played against two others who played Tesla and Edison respectively. So basically they had a ton of electric stuff all over their place. I stayed well away from electricity, not having one single part that dealt with that newfangled type of power. Electricity will never catch on. But all in all, yeah, Steampunk Rally is a cool little twist on a racing game. However, I will stipulate that you need to be careful with analysis paralysis players and you should never... Never play this with more than four players. We played this with four players and it was getting to that borderline where it's like, okay, the game's starting to overstay its welcome here. This game can go up to eight players. I cannot even fathom playing this with eight players. Five would be too much. Six, again, very, very too much. Seven and eight, though? Who is playing this game with eight people building all those different types of Oh, I cannot see how that would work. It would just boggle my mind how long that game would take, how 
complex all the machines would get. I mean, you'd see a lot of variety, but man, that's too long. Anyway, Steampunk Rally, decent little game. About a 6 out of 10, I would say. You know, it's a cool little one. Just got to watch the analysis paralysis. Maybe play this with a max of four players. You know, three is a really good number. And just, you know, try and move at a swift pace, and it will do you well. Steampunk Rally. This next one was a treat that I got to try earlier today, funny enough, and it's a very recent game. This is called Raiders of the North Sea, which was a Kickstarter of a Viking game. Now, we've had a fair few of these in recent months. We've had Blood Rage by Cool Money or Not. We had Champions of Midgard, which set to be a contender against Lords of Waterdeep. Well, now we've got Raiders of the North Sea, which again is set in the Viking Age, and typically you are raising Viking warriors and going out and pillaging settlements. Gee, what else do Vikings get up to? Raiders of the North Sea gave me a feel similar to Stone Age in terms of the simplistic type of worker placement. You don't roll for resources, you get what you plunder and you know what you're going to plunder because there's all these different places you can go and each one has a randomised set of plunder at the start of the game but you know what you're getting. You'll get a mixture of iron, you'll get some livestock and you'll get some gold but you might also take on some Valkyries who essentially manage to get on board and kill your Viking characters off. You have a ship, you build up a crew of five up to five Vikings, and these are made out of cards with all sorts of different crew members from grave diggers to chieftains to archers, that kind of thing, each with special abilities for when you put them on your crew, but also special abilities for when you discard the card out of your hand using certain buildings on the map. But what really sets this apart from a lot of games is the unique worker placement system it has. Because you start off basically having to do basic actions on your starting homeland, and it's a shared board. You use these black meeples, black viking meeples, and the way you do your actions is that you place your own meeple on the board where there isn't a meeple and do the action. You then remove a meeple that's already on a different space and do the action of that one as well. So you're doing two actions a turn. Now, the cool thing with this is that when you start off, you have only these black meeples, and depending on where they are and where they aren't will dictate what actions you're able to do. So there is a limitation as well, which a good worker placement should have, but it doesn't feel too constricted. The cool thing, though, is that when you go and raid or pillage the various places, from the harbours to the outposts and then so on to like monasteries and fortresses that get steadily harder and harder, when you raid them, you get to take... The, the meeple you put there is locked, for the whole game, and you take the meeple from the place you pillaged, which is a different colour. You've got black, you've got grey, and then you get white. The cool thing is, is that some of the spaces do different things depending on which colour meeple you put there. But the other cool thing is that that meeple isn't necessarily stuck with you, because you put that meeple on the board and it stays there. Anybody else can lift it off that space to do the action as per the text that corresponds to that colour meeple themselves, even if they didn't earn it themselves. So as the game progresses, the black meeples start getting locked out of the game, meaning that the actions are more akin to the greys, which slowly get locked out themselves, which get more akin to the white. But the fact is, is that just because somebody pillaged something before you does not mean you can't get the benefit of the upgraded meeple until, you know, until you go out and pillage because it will be on the board at some point when they've had their go. It's a really cool little system and I think that's what makes this game stand out. All these Viking games that have come out, there's going to be the consensus of which ones you like best. Personally, if we're going to go purely by recent affairs, so we've had Champions of Midgard and we've had Blood Rage and we've had this one, 
I'm actually going to say I think this one's the best. Champions of Midgard is a decent game. Looks the business, and you do feel like Vikings going out and plundering stuff. Well, not necessarily plundering, but killing cool monsters. The problem Midgard has is the balance isn't perfect, and the dice, even though the custom dice for each type of attack is a nice idea and they look cool, they can be quite swingy. If you roll badly, you are kind of screwed, and that is difficult to mitigate. In Blood Rage, Blood Rage cared more about the miniatures than it did about the gameplay, but even though it's a good game, there's only so much variety in those upgrade cards, and rather than you don't really feel like you're plundering settlements, you're basically beating the snot out of each other, and occasionally using big monsters to do so. Now, that's cool in itself, and the miniatures are fantastic, but I don't know, I, I get bored of it after a little while, and it just... You know, I'll play it every now and again, but it didn't really sing with me, despite all the hype. This one, though, felt more like a Viking game. I am getting a crew that is my crew, no one else's. My unique five cards. Now, other people might have some of that on their ship. You know, I might have an archer and somebody else might have one. But there's a good variety in the types that you can get from the deck of cards that represent all the crews. They each have different abilities for playing and discarding, so you can use them in cool little combo ways, as I found out. And you are effectively going out and pillaging places. That's what Vikings do. You can, you know, you can wail on other players to a light extent, but there's very little cutthroat thing in it. But it looks cool. The meeples are nice shaped and nice quality. The resources look cool. You know, solid wooden pieces. The board is nice and colourful. The worker placement sort of aspect itself, and even the huts that you can get. Well, not the huts, sorry. I called it huts because it feels a bit like the Stone Age huts. Essentially, you can make offerings when you've gone and got the plundered resources. And essentially, you've got these sets of tiles where putting in different resources gets you these different points. So, basically, it's the huts out of Stone Age. It's the exact same thing. Hell, it's so similar that the worker spots themselves, the the actual place where you put the meeples, they've got that same little white unclosed, you know, that open white ring thing that Stone Age worker placements has, you know, right down to the letter. You'd almost think it was a rip-off in some cases. But it's the cool thing. I wouldn't necessarily call this a gateway level though. So if you're looking for a gateway worker placement, I think Stone Age would be a better one for you because the stuff you do with the cards can get a little confusing for a new player. But I think this would be the best next step above it. If you're thinking, oh, we do good with Stone Age, maybe we could do Lords of Waterdeep? That's still an excellent choice, but you've got a contender here in Raiders of the North Sea. Thumbs up for me. Now for my favourite part of every podcast that I do, my top 10 list, and this time, top 10 designers. I've been wanting to do this one for quite some time, but it does require you to play a fair amount of games before you start commenting on whether designers are any good for your opinion or not. Now, a couple of caveats I will mention with this one. Just because it happens to be my favourite game of all time does not mean a designer is automatically going to be on the list. I would love to put the designers of Sentinels and the Multiverse on this list, but as far as I'm aware, that's the only game they did. Maybe they did... Oh, wait. Did they do the sequel to Sentinels of the Multiverse? The spaceship one? Possibly. But I've tried it, and I wasn't a big fan of that. So I can't put the designers on this top 10 list purely because of one game they've designed that just happens to be my all-time favourite. Now, there are some designers on this list who I would say 
haven't done that many games, but the stuff that they've done, at least two or three of them, have got me excited enough that I want to know more about what they're bringing out in the future. And of course, there are some big names on this list, but there's also some big names that aren't on this list that you probably thought I was going to put on that I haven't, or ones that most people tend to put on their list and I haven't. So, ooh, which ones will they be? But anyway, let's make a start. Top 10 Designers. Number 10 is a mild cheat because I'm going to include two designers on this bit and that's because they've pretty much collaborated together on everything they've done so far which to be fair isn't that many games but they've been pretty solid so far and I'm curious to see how they turn out in the future and that is Jamie Stegmeier and Alan Stone namely the two people in charge of Stonemeyer Games. Now, their best thing to date has easily been Viticulture, and Euphoria was also a really good game that is also in my collection. I really do need to get that out a bit more often, but, you know, looks the business and plays really well. Not just being great designers, though. These two know how to be publishers as well. My god, the component quality in their game is just beautiful. They know how to run a Kickstarter. They know how to get the buzz going. They know how to run a publishing business. And then I mentioned two games there. Between Two Cities, the recent drafting game is also quite a good laugh and very well designed. And Scythe, as much as I'm not on the hype train for Scythe at the moment like everyone else seems to be, I'm certainly excited to see how it pans out, if only just to see more of that fantastic artwork of having these steam mech things in the background of 1920s farming. It just looks so nice on paper. Will it work? Who's to know? My number 9 is a man who tends to do a lot of quirky mechanics in his games or seems to come up with these ones that are very unique and maybe a little crazy at times and that's Bruno Fiduti. Bruno Fiduti designed the one game that kept me going until I got into modern games which was Citadels and it's still one of my favourites at the moment and I believe it still features in my top 75 from last time. But on top of that, he's also part-designed Mission Red Planet, another great game. Masquerade is a very cool party game. Dragon's Gold, a recent edition that I'm waiting to get a chance to review, that will probably be one of the uh, 10-minute audio ones, is a really cool negotiation game. Raptor, he did with Bruno Kafala, and even Smiley Face, a game which I thought I would hate. I just thought, what is this weird little card game with loads of emoticons on it? And yet it played surprisingly well for what it was expected to be. So i got to give him props for that. Now, he hasn't necessarily been bringing it lately as far as I'm aware, with the exception of Raptor. Because most of these games that I mentioned are relatively old games. They've just sort of come back into reprint. So I'm still curious to see what he gets up to. But I own a few games in my collection that feature his name. And I certainly do enjoy a lot of stuff with it. So for a little bit of quirkiness... Bruno for Duty Man number 9. My number 8 hasn't so much as designed a lot of solo games, but when he collaborates with other people, he really does produce some good favourites of mine, and that is Kevin Wilson. 
Kevin Wilson has designed at least three games, or at least co-designed three games that I really adore. He teamed up for Arkham Horror. He teamed up for Cosmic Encounter. He teamed up for Descent 2.0. These are really cool games. And on top of that, I've got Fury of Dracula, which has his name on it. So I'm very excited to get that one played. And he also designed the Sid Meier Civilization game by Fantasy Flight, which I really adore. It's one of my favorite Civilization board games that there is at the moment. And if I, I want to see what he does next, really. I don't know if he's actually doing much new at the moment. That's the only thing. Those games that I mentioned have been out for quite some time. So I hope that he's collaborating with someone else and is going to design something relatively new in the future. But for now, he's certainly been a good favourite and deserves the 8th spot on this list. Kevin Wilson. My number 7 would be higher on the list if he had more games to his name. And I'm very sorry if I pronounce your name wrong. It's not like Greek names are really easy to pronounce for me. But Vangelis Bagiratakis? 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 I'm not entirely certain how to pronounce it. B-A-G-I-A-R-T-A-K-I-S. It's a difficult one for me to pronounce, I'm sorry. But... This is the man who designed Among the Stars, a really cool sci-fi drafting version of Seven Wonders, Dice City, which is the game that Machikoro wished it could be, unfortunately Machikoro might as well be just used as firewood, and he collaborated to design one of my new favourite hotness games at the moment, which is Pursuit of Happiness. He wasn't the full designer of it, but he collaborated on it, and I can certainly see elements of his style incorporated within that game. Now, unfortunately, these are the only three games to his name on BoardGameGeek, but if he carries on at the rate that he's going at the moment, he's going to design some belters for me. I love Among the Stars. I still own it. I like Dice City. I use it as a teaching game to say to people, look, if Mighty Korra is too simple for you, here's a game that's actually fun. And Pursuit of Happiness is one of my current favorite Euros at the moment. I have a feeling this is easily going to make my top 20 games next time I do a top well, top 75, top 100 chart? I don't know. I'll leave it to you guys to tell me how many I should do next time. But if he carries on at this rate, I'm going to love his next game. So I'm really excited to see what he brings to the table next. He would be higher if only there was just a few more games to go on, as at the moment, two, two and a half is not enough to push you all the way to the top. But I'm really excited for you, mate. Keep making games. I look forward to your next one. My number six is the designer who most people, I suspect, have shoved at number one of their various designer lists, and that is Eric Lang. Eric Lang is better known for doing a lot of games lately that just basically are selling like hotcakes. He seems to be on fire at the moment with the way that his games are selling with regards to all the miniature games that are on offer. He did Arcadia Quest, which I still think is his best miniatures game to date. He did Blood Rage, which even though I don't mind, I think it's okay, but it's certainly not as brilliant as everyone says it is, that's still selling like crazy at the moment, but, and Dice Masters also, I nearly forgot, Dice Masters, a really cool game, I had to sell off my collection recently, which I was very sad about, but that was purely because I couldn't get it to the table often enough. 
However, other games that most people may not remember that he did, he designed the 40,000 Conquest LCG, which I don't own it because I can only keep up so many LCGs at the moment, but it's a cool little game. Chaos in the Old World, a brilliant little game, that one, well, little, actually it's relatively heavy, but this is the game that Blood Rage is similar to, but I much prefer Chaos in the Old World. Uh, This was basically how you design an asymmetrical board game and get it right. And of course, one of my top 10 games from the previous uh, top 75 list was XCOM, and he was a big name for that as well. So he's had some hits, and he's had the occasional miss. He's, He's kind of like, I hard to say where to put him. He's designed a couple of games I adore, but he's also designed a couple of games I'm like, meh. You know, so he's very much a hit and miss. But what he does do well, I really, really like. So if he could just pull himself away from all these cool mini or not style miniature games and go back to maybe, you know, speak to Fantasy Flight and design something more in the lines of what XCOM and Chaos in the Old World was like. I mean, actually, I would really love for him to get on board and start doing a sequel to XCOM now that we've got XCOM 2 out on the PC. That would be really cool. So for now, he's going to be hovering around the 6 mark. And whether he rises or drops on the next time I do this is going to depend entirely on which way he goes from here. So, Eric Lang, number six. My number five has a wealth of titles to his name, whether by collaboration or by sole design. And he has the knack for being able to do really epic games. We're talking the big games here, the ones that take many hours to play, feature epic sci-fi settings. He certainly has a bit of a sci-fi knack at the moment, but not entirely. He's able to do horror and fantasy as well. He's designed such epic games as Forbidden Stars, Eldritch Horror, Descent 2.0, Battlestar Galactica, and of course, the ever-huge Twilight Imperium 3, and that is Corey Kinesga. He's also done X-Wing Miniatures and Imperial Assault, which I like, but I'm not the biggest fans of. You can check out my recent review of Imperial Assault to see where I was, where I went sort of like, this is really good and this isn't as good as part of that. X-Wing Miniatures is a fine miniatures game, I just don't have the time or money to be able to play that one. And I'm excited to try out Star Wars Rebellion when that comes out, because again, that's another epic level game. And Forbidden Stars, some people might remember, was my top game of 2015. A really awesome 40k epic game, which I would love to play more often. But of course, event games take a while to get to the table. But I can't wait for that one. Corey Kinetska, the king of epic level games. My number four doesn't have a huge amount of games to his name either, but when it comes to Euro games, this man really knows how to suck me in currently. Now, I am a lover of Euro games that incorporate theme, and you'll see another Euro designer who's very good at that later on in the list as a little spoiler. But this one doesn't have a huge amount of games to his name, which is why he's just missed the cut compared to the other one. But, so far, his games have really appealed to me, and that is Vital Lacerda. Vital Lacerda has won me over with Kanban Automotive Revolution and The Gallerist. Both are 
excellent Euro games with strong themes and really nice mechanics. Kanban would be my favourite of the two. I love that game, the way that the, you manage the car factory and you can make whatever cars you like and you have to get the designs and then get the parts and then put the assembly line into motion and test them around the track and upgrade the parts. And then you've got to mess around with Sandra, the boss, whether she's nice or mean to you. Such a cool game. And I was really gutted, actually, to prolong this a little bit. At the Sorcon convention, somebody I knew there was playing Kanban and was being taught it in what must have been a really dodgy way because their game went on for hours and hours. And it took, it took the person about an hour to teach them the game. Now, I know Kanban's complicated. I have taught Kanban. It does not take one hour to do that game, you know, to teach that game. And it certainly shouldn't have taken as long as it should to play it. So I feel bad that he didn't get the same experience that I did when I was first introduced to Kanban by Paul Grogan. So, you know, hopefully he'll play it again at some point with better people. Who knows? Maybe I'll see him at another convention and I'll teach him the game. But, oh, yeah, Kanban and Garrist I do love. I've got CO2 on the shelf. It's just a bit of a pain, that rule book. But at some point, I will try that. And I reckon I'm going to like that one as well. And I've also semi-kickstarted the Vinos Deluxe, which I cannot wait to try out. Because I love viticulture. I like winemaking as a theme. He's already shown me that he can incorporate themes strongly into his games. So Vinos is naturally going to be one I love. I say semi-kicked because... I haven't done it through Kickstarter, I've done it through Filibert because the shipping cost was like cut by two-thirds or something compared to the ridiculous amount on the Kickstarter. But I have pre-ordered it, so that is going to arrive later in the year, I hope. So Vinos, Kanban, the Gallerist, and CO2. What's he going to do next? I don't know. He's got one or two games on the pipeline. I hope they're decent. Can't wait. Vital Deserta number four. My number three is the Euro designer who just pipped Vital Lacerda to the curb. Sorry Vital, but this designer has been around for longer, has a lot of games to his name, and has created some of my favourite Euro games to date, for especially in the region of resource management and, shall we say, farming, I guess? Yep, it's Uwe Rosenberg. Agricola, Le Havre, Caverna. Three fantastic Euro games. I don't have Agricola anymore because I prefer Caverna, but those Le Havre and Caverna sit in my collection proudly. On top of that, he did Patchwork, which I tried recently. It's a very nice little two-player game. Now, I wasn't a fan of Glass Road as much. I think the card mechanic lets that game down, but the rest of it is really solid. And Fields of Arl is a brilliant two-player Euro game. In fact, I've only played it two-player once. I use it as a solo game because it's just so involved, so dramatic, such a, like a sandbox Euro-style game. It's really nice. You should check out Fields of Arl if you get a chance. Also, on top, I want to try out all his other stuff as well, particularly Aura and Labora and Bonanza, two games that I hear quite a lot about. Now, the, what's really got me interested with Uri Rosenberg lately is the fact that he has co-designed the expansion coming out this March, actually, for the Viticulture game I mentioned earlier. He's got, it's called More Visitors, and it basically just features 40 more visitor cards for Viticulture. Now, it's a small expansion, cost me a tenner to pre-order it, and... Essentially, I like to expand a game that I really like. But the fact that he's had a hand in it 
makes me really excited because the viticulture viti- the viticulture visitor cards cool try saying that a lot when you're drunk they are pretty good at the moment once you get the Tuscany expansion. Granted, the base set were a little bit unbalanced, but the Tuscany expansion fixed that. But Uri Rosenberg, with his you know knowledge and experience of farming-style games, I can't wait to see what he's done with these visitor cards. I hope they're really cool, really unique, and really varied. Just please make sure you get the balance right. So, one, pro- in fact, he is my favourite Euro designer of all, Uri Rosenberg, number three. My number two and my number one were impossible to distinguish because I love both these two designers. But in the end, I had to put someone at number one and I had to put someone at number two. And I had to go by all the games that they've done. Not just the ones I own, but the ones I've played. Also the ones that I'm intrigued to try and how many they've done to date. So that was what I had to consider. But number two is one of my favorite designers of all time and he deserves this spot Antoine Boza. I hope that's how I pronounce his surname. I've heard many different variations. But Seven Wonders and Seven Wonders Duel would be probably his crowning achievement from everybody else's perspective. Personally, I think his best work has been Takinoko, a gateway level game that I have had so much success teaching to people it's unreal, and the deluxe version of that game sits greatly on the table at Dice Portsmouth events showing off the giant panda. But on top of that, Ghost Stories, a fantastic and very difficult co-op game. Also Hanabi, that really cool little co-op game where you have your cards facing away from you. Always a good one for that, and I remember playing that a lot of times with my ex-girlfriend on a camping trip. Portable, really nice. And obviously Takedo, the Japanese Zen-style game, which I am just aching to get a copy of because I'm waiting for the deluxe version to be released in the UK. It's coming, it's on sites for pre-order, I'm just waiting for it to be said it's released, and then I will be getting my copy into my collection. A really cool little game. But there's just something about Antoine Bolz's style I really like. It's... I don't know how to explain it. They just make you feel good. I don't know what it is. Remember when I said Zen about the Takedo game? I get the same feeling for Takinoko. You play either of those two games and you just cheer up. You know, you just can't help but go, ah, oh, little panda and, you know, I'm moving along and getting all this like, sushi and stuff. But I know it sounds weird, but there's just something about those two games. And Ghost Stories is a really cool game that, you know, uses the mechanics really well, nice and colourful, and the mechanics are sound. The expansion makes it even better. Seven Wonders, probably my favourite drafting game that exists at the moment, particularly with all the expansions. Duel was a brilliant two-player version of that as well. So I'm really excited to see if Antoine Bozer can just hit it out of the park again when he designs his next game. And I know that he doesn't intend to stop here. So carry on, Antoine Bozer. Deserved number two. But before we get to number one, here are some honourable mentions for you. Richard Garfield. Richard Garfield is best known for Magic the Gathering and Android Netrunner, two incredibly good card games. 
Unfortunately, after that, the only main thing from his name that I really, well, that I sort of enjoy is the King of New York, King of Tokyo series. Now, Magic the Gathering, I don't play anymore, but it certainly kept me going through university times. And Android Netrunner is my go-to LCG alongside Lord of the Rings, the living card game, and it's a fantastic design. Now, King of Tokyo and King of New York is also a great design for younger people and for some family gamers. I've kind of grown a little bit, mm, a little, not necessarily bored, but kind of like, yeah, I'm burnt out on that game now. I don't own a copy of either anymore. I just basically have Android Netrunner. But I can't deny that for many years of my life, Richard Garfield has played a part in some highly enjoyable games, mostly through Android Netrunner and Magic the Gathering, so he deserves at least an honorable mention. Matt Leacock. Matt Leacock hasn't designed as many games as I would necessarily go for, but if Forbidden Island and Forbidden Desert have been fantastic gateway games for me to teach to new players, one of which is in my collection, the desert version, and the island version I have acquired for friends with kids on a regular basis. Now, of course, most people know him for Pandemic and Pandemic Legacy. I don't mind Pandemic, but it's not my favorite co-op of all time. However, I am looking forward to trying out Pandemic Legacy when I eventually get some friends of mine to get organized and play it with me. So, honorable mention for Matt Leacock, being, you know, certainly one of the better designers out there for co-op games. Righto, number one, and to be honest, I think after you've heard me bang on about Antoine Bozer and how difficult it was to split him and this person, I think you've probably guessed who it was. I have a similar opinion to Z Garcia about this designer. In terms of the games I really enjoy, not even all the ones that I own, just ones that I've tried, this man has a wide variety of games that I just really like to play. Whether I own them or whether someone brings them to the table, I just know that when he designs a game, it's going to be pretty fun. And that's Bruno Cafala or Catala. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm getting these names wrong. It's, you know, I'm useless with names. But Shadows of a Camelot, Mission Red Planet, Five Tribes, Cyclades, Abyss, Seven Wonders Duel, Dice Town, Raptor, Jamaica. All of these games are quality games. Now, not um, Jamaica I'm a little less keen on, but all those others I mentioned are fantastic games. I own Five Tribes, I own Shadows of a Camelot and Mission Red Planet and Abyss and Seven Wonders Duel and Raptor. He features in my collection possibly more so than other designers that I've just mentioned on this list, possibly with the slight exception of Antoine Bolzer, but that's why those are number one and number two on my list, to be perfectly frank. But I want to try other games that he's done, particularly Senji. This is a game that Z Garcia has gone on about a few times in his in the Dice Tower podcast, and it's this weird kind of negotiation diplomacy style game set in feudal Japan. And it sounds really cool, but you can't seem to find a copy of it for love nor money. So if anybody does have a like cheap copy going strong, then give me a shout, because I might be interested to take it off your hands if it's in good nick. But it's certainly one that I want to try out. And of course, anything else that he designs, I want to try out as well. I've met him at Essen, I met Antoine Bolzer at Essen. Both of them are great, lovely, friendly people, particularly Bruno. He just, he seems like... Is he's like a man who every time you meet him, he's entered his second childhood. 
it's kind of weird. He's always smiling. He's always sort of like, he's got that really happy, smiley face as if he's just having a ball with everything he does. Like I say, it's just like he's entered his second childhood the minute you meet him. So I can't wait to see what he designs next. Him and Tromboza, hell, all these 10 designers. They are great people, great individuals, and their contribution to the board gaming industry is one of the reasons why I've stuck around for so long and have no intention of leaving at all anytime soon. And that wraps up episode 41. I've had a great three days at Sorcon and I enjoyed putting together that top 10 designer list just so that I could look through my collection and see who has had the biggest influence on me. Now, of course, I was mentioning earlier in the podcast that I was hoping to see if I could get to Bacon. Unfortunately, that's no longer possible because Bacon's dates clash with Stabcon South, which I'm already going to between the 1st and 3rd of April. And as much as I want to try out the new conventions, Stabcon South is very enjoyable, and most of all, it's within 30 minutes drive of me. I'm in Portsmouth, it's in Southampton, and a lot of my friends go to it. Therefore, if I'm going to pick one of the two on this occasion, it's so much easier for me to get to Stabcon South. So, sorry, Bacon. Hopefully next year I'll get to try you out. Let's just hope the dates don't clash as much as before. But certainly, Sorcon was a fantastic place for me to be. I enjoyed it greatly. It was well organized. It was There were great games, no duds, and just friendly people. Those that I'd met who I'd never met before, who followed the podcast and who followed the blog... Thank you for introducing yourselves to me and and bringing me into your games. Some of the games that I played that convention I'd never seen before, but they were high on my wish list and I wasn't disappointed with any of them. They were all classics. So that's it for me. I'd best get on and start writing some of the other reviews I've got to do because you may have noticed that I'm a little bit behind on written reviews at the moment. Well, like I said, my job in its audit stage has sucked a life out of me at the moment and of course I had the three-day convention and I had to do this podcast. I can only do so so much by myself but rest assured written reviews are coming. I've got some great titles on the lineup and if you've been paying attention to my Facebook and Twitter feed you'll have noticed some other games that have come into the collection at the moment for me to review such as Zombicide, Black Plague, City of Iron, The Game, There's a lot of cool stuff for me to do and that's just the games that I've got as review copies. There's also games I want to review like Pursuit of Happiness and Dragon's Gold and all sorts of other cool stuff that I want to review but they're not all going to be done you know at once you know they will be spread out and some of them I am going to have to start doing these 10 minute reviews on audio so that is going to happen it's going to happen very soon sometime during March I promise I will get round to starting these 10 minute audio reviews where I will go over some games that are in my collection that I've always wanted to review they will be kept to 10 minutes max I in I intend that to be a thing it they will be no longer than 10 minutes and the format that I want to go for is that I just basically give a quick introduction of the game and then I give a very brief overview of how it plays and that is different from explaining the rules. People can find out their own rules. People can watch Rado runs through or Rodney watch it played or watch the Dice Tower reviews for seeing how the rules of a game work or even Paul Grogan's videos when he does them, you know, some of his cool, some of his great videos on the rules. I leave it to them to sort that out. Really, 
if you want to know the rules, you can find out in better ways than me explaining it to you in case I get a rule wrong. But what I will do is that I will introduce the game, then I will give an overview of what it's about and how it plays, you know, just a general overview, try and get the theme across if there is one, and then I'll just talk about the game. I'll talk about how I feel about it, highlights that I like, and if it's a negative review, things I don't like. And, you know, get this right, not all of these reviews on the audio are going to be good ones. Because yes, I said I've got some games in the collection I want to review, but there are some games that I don't have in my collection because I don't like the games that I feel I could review now anyway because I've played them enough times. So expect maybe a certain horror game that uh, some people like and I don't, a Marmite tile game. I wonder which horror game that could be. Yeah, expect that for my first negative review. Let's put it that way. So yeah, I'm going to get started on those as soon as I can. The audit will only get easier for me to deal with at work. So, you know, as time goes on through March, my free time will start coming back and I'll be able to really catch up with these written reviews and get some games played, etc. So just bear with me. This is just going to be one of these annual busy times for me. So reviews may just slow down slightly for this period. But hopefully this podcast will keep you entertained for a good hour or so while I get on with that. So that's it from me. Take care. Enjoy playing games. Thank you everybody who I saw at SawCon. You were all great. The games were all great. It was just great. And I look forward to seeing you in 2017 for the next SawCon event. But until then, that's it from me. Take care. Good night. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to my podcast. Thank you for your continued support. If you wish to find out more, you can check out the website at www.brokenmeeple.blogspot.co.uk. Alternatively, you can chat to me on Twitter at The Broken Meeple or search for my Facebook page under, of course, The Broken Meeple. This podcast is dedicated to the gamers like you who play the games I love. So take care, have fun and enjoy the hobby.